Today we're starting a new series called The Art of Neighboring. Um, as I mentioned, we're sort of starting it. Well, we're definitely starting it. We're just not finishing it anytime soon. We're going to do this series unlike anything we've done here before. Um, instead of doing this series one week after another, and we spend a couple weeks just talking about it, and then we move on, we're going to introduce the idea today. And uh, in fact, we're going to uh, then take a break, and we're going to pick it up later in the summer. And the reason we're doing that is um, after the end of the sermon today, um, you're uh, going to be given some homework to accomplish, and uh, we want to give you lots of time to do that. Um, we want to make sure you have plenty of time to accomplish the homework that will be assigned today. And uh, in fact, if you're wondering what the homework is, uh, you should have gotten it when you arrived. Um, it's right here. Um, it's what we call the update. There's room on the back to take notes, but on the front is the homework assignment. So if you look at this, it's a really simple graph, and it says in the middle there, you are here. So that's where you live. And you can look at this in a couple of different ways. You could view this as a horizontal plane. So you could say all of the houses surrounding you, the houses to the back and to the front, to the side and to the corner. Or you could look at this in a, if you live in an apartment complex, you could say the houses above you or you know, next to you, that sort of thing. So there's lots of ways to look at this. But the homework assignment is to fill in the names of all of the neighbors who live around you. In fact, what if we took a second, grab a pen, what neighbors' names do you know already? How many, how many can you list? Some of you are excited because you're like, I've got it, I know a couple, and some of you are giving me the look of conviction because you aren't sure of anyone's names living near you. How good. In fact, if you can, I'll put it this way, the first person today who can put at least one name in each block, I've got this gift, I've got a free cup to Stoffs, a tumbler, and information about our church. If you're a guest, you get one already. But if someone can put at least one name in each block, this is yours. You got it? Hey, now here's a follow-up question for that. Do you have the names of everyone? To be fair, uh, you live in your mother's old house, correct? She, she grew up there, so that, that helps. Um, uh, if you, um, now here's the great thing. If you were able to at least name one person, the goal would be then to name, learn the names of everyone. And if you've got the names of everyone who lives directly around you, here's the other thing we're doing later in the summer that we want you to begin to prepare for. There's about 10 churches who are doing this sermon series in one way or another in this area. And on August 5th, all of the churches are encouraging all of their people um, to host block parties in their neighborhood. So it's going to be a weekend or a week, anytime around August 5th, of block parties throughout the city of Columbus. So I want you, uh, we're talking about it today, and we'll pick it up when it gets closer to August again, because I want you, especially if you've got them all listed already, you're a perfect candidate to host one of these block parties. So... Um, um, so the first assignment is one, learn the names of your neighbors. There's lots of ways to do this, of course. Take them a plate of cookies or uh, stop by or, you know, there's lots of ideas and you can Google even more. Uh, it's something that people talk about on the internet quite a bit on how to meet your neighbors. But then I also want you to begin praying. Could your house be one of the houses where you invite, not a big block party necessarily, not like the whole neighborhood, but just even just the immediate people around you, what would it look like to have them over for a cookout 
to have them over for dinner, to have them over for some yard games? What would it look like to be a neighbor? That's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to talk about later this summer as well. And that's what we want you to begin praying about. You'll hear about this periodically over the next couple of weeks, especially when we pick this series up again. But today, I want to begin to lay just a theological foundation for what this is all about, why this is so important. So um, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at two passages. They're very similar to each other. And we're going to look at what does God have to say about what it means to be a neighbor. So the first one is Luke 10, 25 to 37. So this series, this, this sermon really is based on what is called the great commandment, the two great commandments. This is found in Matthew 35. Um, and it's all, Matthew 22 as well as Luke 10. So we're actually going to start in Matthew 22, but you can, if you're at Luke 10, you can just stay there. So Matthew 22, we'll put it up on the screen, starting with verse 35. Um, it says this, an expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. So also great. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When when Jesus is asked the question, what's most important? Like that's the question he's being asked. What's most important? He answers, the most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said that everything hangs on these two, loving God and loving your neighbor. He says all of the law and the prophets, which is a way of talking, the entire Old Testament hangs on these two commandments to love God and love your neighbor. The entire way we understand who God is and what God wants from us hangs on these two commandments to love God and love your neighbor. In other words, if we do these two things, everything else kind of just falls into place. So this is very serious stuff. And so this summer, we want to ask a very simple question. What if Jesus meant what he said? Imagine that. What if Jesus meant what he said? What if he really meant that we are to love our neighbors? And not just the random neighbors we meet along the way, but our literal neighbors too. The people who live next to us, who share a street with us, who share a school with us, who share a grocery store with us. The people who are living above us, one floor up or one floor down. What if all of the law and the prophets and all that we understand about what God wants from us hung on the reality of what it means to love God and to love your actual living next to neighbors? So what does that look like, and what does that mean? Today I want to start with what is certainly the most defining passage of Scripture about what it means to love our neighbor. It's the parable called the Good Samaritan. Have you heard this story before? You can find it in Luke 10, so if you're there already, it's starting in Luke 10, starting with verses 25 through 37. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can watch those Scriptures as they come up on the screen. Instead of reading the whole passage at once, I'm going to just work our way through it. Um, Here in Luke, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry and he's teaching and as was common as he teaches or leads and serves as he's out and about in the community, people would stop and ask him questions or ask for healing, etc. So someone stops Jesus and, and asks him a question and that's where the story begins, verse 25, it goes like this. 
On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So this translation says an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Some translations use the word lawyer, which is an unfortunate translation, not because there's anything wrong with lawyers, um, just a, a bad translation, um, because uh, it's deceptive. This lawyer, um, which might be a literal translation, this lawyer wasn't a lawyer of Roman law or, or of societal laws. This lawyer was a religious Jew. He was an expert in, in, in the Old Testament law for Jewish people. So this was a Bible scholar. Maybe a better way to look at this expert in the law would be a seminary professor the kind of person who writes books and speaks at places, he can fill auditoriums because of his knowledge, the kind of person that when there's a conundrum that you have to figure out, what's, what's the Christian response to this or that, they'll go to this person and they'll write a blog and it'll go viral because of their insights into scripture. That's what's going on here, the, an expert in the Bible. And so this kind of the person you would go to if you wanted the right answer. So he is going to test Jesus. Now, there's some debate when you read this passage as to what his intentions were. Um, some say that he's trying to trick Jesus or to make him look bad. Others were just saying that he's literally trying to test Jesus, that he wants to know how Jesus would answer this question. So we're not sure whether his motives are sincere or whether his motives are, are a little less than sincere, but it's pretty, pretty clear in the text that he wasn't looking to learn something from Jesus. He wanted to know what Jesus would say. He wanted to know if Jesus would give the right answer. So here's this expert in the law. He goes to Jesus to find out if Jesus believes the right things. Sort of a theological litmus test. And if Jesus believes the right things, then Jesus can be a part of that community. And if Jesus doesn't, then he won't have anything to do with him. Because people did things like that back then, not today. And so this man asked the question, verse 25. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting that he says, what must I do? Not what must I believe or accept or what must I receive, but do. How can I earn it? In some ways, he's asking the wrong question. And so Jesus does as Jesus often does when confronted with people like this. He turns it around. And instead of giving an answer, he follows up with a question. Jesus is just annoying like that. <laughs> he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? It's almost like Jesus is saying, well, you're the expert. What do you think? And this expert in the law, being a good teacher of the law, like understanding scripture really well, he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes two passages in the Old Testament, one from Deuteronomy and one from uh, Leviticus, both very formative to the Jewish faith and to ours, that summarize these two commands. He answered, love the, Lord with your, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This Deuteronomy passage, which was something Jews memorized, as well as this passage, this verse in Leviticus. And he answers by quoting scripture, like a good religious person. And Jesus agrees. He says, you've got the right answer. Verse 28, he says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. 
I just I really love this moment in the story because if you think about it, this is what's happened. Jesus has completely turned the table around, hasn't he? The expert in the law goes up to Jesus to test Jesus, and Jesus somehow, in his very clever ways, turns it around, puts the question back on the expert, the expert provides the answer, and then Jesus says, bing, right, you got it, you've passed. And Jesus becomes, in some way, the expert, saying that the other person has passed. I find this is often the case when I try to question God or challenge God. God tends to turn it around on me and question me or challenge me. I don't know if that's been your experience. But all the same, this guy gave a biblical answer. It's the right answer. He could support his position with scripture. He could cite chapter and verse if he wanted to. He wouldn't have because chapter and verses didn't exist at that time, but he could have. But this is where the story gets really interesting. Because although he could cite chapter and verse, so to speak, his heart was clearly not in the right place. Verse 29, he says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He, being the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. Let's pause there for a minute. Remember what's happened up to this point. An expert in the law comes to Jesus and asks him a question. Jesus asks, well, what do you think? The guy gives an answer that's very biblical, chapter and verse. Jesus says, you've got it. I agree. Ding, ding, ding. Correct answer. And that could have been the end of their discussion. Couldn't have been. Go on with their way. You answered correctly. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. Notice what he tries to do. He tries to limit the command by limiting its parameters. The lawyer says, the, the law says to love your neighbor, but who is my neighbor? This guy? This one? Or is my neighbor the people I already like? Is it my literal neighbor or is it just a random person on the street? He says, okay, I know what the law says, but ultimately, um, I don't have to follow the law if I can find some kind of loophole, if I can find a way out to explain that it doesn't actually apply to me anymore, to this situation or to this circumstance. He tried to limit the command by limiting the parameters. Now, here's confession time. I have a tendency to do this, and I wonder if you do too. We try to limit where or even if a particular command of God applies to my life. Jesus, I know you say that I should forgive those who wrong us, but certainly you don't mean that person, that circumstance. I know you tell me to be generous with all that I have, but certainly not while I'm paying off debt for my new car. I know you call us to a life of purity, but certainly not in this relationship. I know you tell us to not gossip, but these people seem really interested in what I have to say. This, this expert in the law was like, God, I know I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor, but let's talk about what you mean by that. Who exactly are you referring to when you say neighbor? Friends, we are in dangerous territory when we think our situation is the exception to the teachings of Jesus. We try to limit the commands by limiting its parameters. 
And the command this man is trying to limit by his own admission is a big one. In fact, it's the big one. It's one of the, everything hangs on this command to love God and to love your neighbor, right? So if you can find a loophole out of the big one, then you're out of, you don't have to do anything. This man was essentially wanted to know, who can I exclude as my neighbor? Who don't I have to love? Is there anyone I don't have to love? So here's something that I've learned. Um, I, I, actually, that's not a correct way of saying it. Here's something that I am learning. I have quite learned it. Um, maybe you have. Um, it's easily one of the most important things that I'm trying to learn. Um, and it's so important, I'm going to encourage you to write it down. So grab a pen. There's room on the back. Write this down. Um, it's something that one of my mentors has taught me. And actually, much of this sermon comes from uh, my mentor, Paul Reisler. He gave a, a talk on this once, and I'm, I'm pretty much stealing most of his stuff. So if it impacts you, you can just give thanks to him. I'll, 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 I'll tag him in a post. But um, he said this, anytime you are feeling defensive, you are most likely trying to justify yourself. Have you ever felt defensive before? I do. Anytime you're feeling defensive, you're most likely trying to justify yourself. If you feel the need to defend yourself, anytime you feel the need to fight back, to clarify your obviously right position, anytime you are defensive, you are most likely trying to justify yourself. So let me teach you a word, something that he taught me. Um, it's uh, uh, this word right here. We'll put it up. Um, it's not a Greek word or Hebrew or Yiddish. But we can know that we are trying to justify ourselves when we, our gut reaction is, well, yeah, but. Yeah, but that certainly doesn't apply to fill in the blank. Because yeah, but is a sign of getting Defensive. And anytime you are defensive, you're most likely trying to justify yourself, and therefore you may be in a dangerous place in the eyes of God. This expert in the law tries to limit the command by limiting the parameters. And he does this by asking this five-word question that becomes famous. He says, and who is my neighbor? Pray tell, Jesus. Would you tell me? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then you really need to define who my neighbor is. And to answer this question, Jesus tells a parable. It's this story that has become probably one of the most famous stories of all time, not just in Christianity, but just in the world in general. And it starts like this. It's a parable. It's a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he fell into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So don't leave that picture too quickly. I, I had the chance, uh, thankfully, to travel to Israel with my parents once. And while there, we took the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, just as this story takes place. And until you drive this route, you don't realize just how barren and how uh, desolate and how dangerous this road is. Uh, here's a photo from our uh, tour of the, the bus. Um, um, you can see that's, that's, that's what the route looks like from Jerusalem to Jericho. I mean, it's just this desolate, wilderness, barren wasteland. There's nothing there, which means there's no one to protect you. And if you get lost or, or, or taken or mugged or beaten, there's very few chances that someone's going to find you unless someone happens to be walking along the road at the same time because it's in the middle of no, there's no life. People don't live out here except for some nomadic people along the way. So this path was notoriously known as a dangerous road. It was known as the way of blood. 
So this man gets beaten and they leave him half dead. Um, and uh, that happened a lot in these days. But here's where the plot twist comes. Verse 34, he says, and a priest just so happened to be going down the same road. Actually somewhat hard to believe that someone would be going down the same road within time to rescue you after getting beaten to death. But someone just happened to be going down the same road. And right here, Jesus' listeners, and particularly the expert in the law who he's talking to, are thinking, all right, here comes the hero of the story. I mean, not only did someone happen to walk by in time, but he's the kind of person you would expect to help. So a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Well, that's odd, isn't it? Now, why would he do that? Some speculate that he could have been trying to remain ceremonially clean, but he also could have just been worried the guy was faking it and he was trying to protect himself, right? This, this could be a scam to get me. But for whatever reason, he passes. Now, here's a question. Do you think this priest knew that God would want him to stop and help that man? Maybe he was limiting the command to love neighbor by limiting its parameters. Maybe he knew that God said, love your neighbor, but clearly this person along the side of the road in the middle of nowhere wasn't really my neighbor. But that's okay. There's still hope. Verse 32. A Levite, who's also, again, a religious person, comes by. What's the chances? And, and when he came to the place he, and saw the man, he passed by on the other side as well. So here you have this situation. A man is robbed, uh, stripped, um, lame, beaten, half dead, and two religious people come by and just leave him lying there. That's unusual that religious people would neglect people in need, look out only for themselves, because that happened back then, not today. Well, let's keep going. A priest passed by, a Levite passed by, and then verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. So let's stop right there. Okay. You got to understand what's going on in this story. We've lost the context. Um, have, you, have you ever seen a melodrama? Melodramas were originally used. Uh, they would use music to kind of let you know what's happening in the story. So the hero had a particular sound, and the damsel in the dress, distress had a, a particular sound, and the same with the villain. The villain, you knew the villain was the villain because the music began to tell you that the villain had arrived on the, on the, on the stage. And so, in fact, I found this really simple video that kind of explains melodrama um, uh, on YouTube, and so let's watch it just so you're all on the same page. Here's a melodrama. So that's the sound for the hero, right? And then the damsel is, is in distress, right? So there's a problem coming. But the next one is the villain. You know the villain has arrived on the stage and it's like, you, you, can you imagine the black and white film? You've, maybe you can see it. So it was easy to tell the bad guy because um, when he or she walks on the stage, you know, this music would be, and people would boo. The, the music changed and, and everyone knew that this was the bad guy. So this is what happens when Jesus gets to this point in the story. The Samaritan, the character who's introduced as a Samaritan, who is essentially, if every Jew who was listening to this, especially the expert in the law, when they heard the Samaritan, in their mind, and at least in their heart, they heard this villain music playing. It would be like this. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. 
Now, it's a different sermon altogether, but the relationship and the history of the Jews and the Samaritans was really interesting. But suffice it to say that they were incredibly at odds with each other, great amounts of animosity. Samaritans were seen by Jews as inferior people. Neither groups of people liked each other. Now, verse 33, the Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the Jewish man was, and against all odds, it says, and when he saw him, and this is how the text says it, he took pity on him. This word here translated took pity on him. Well, it's most often in scripture attributed to Jesus. Everywhere else it's translated moved to compassion or had compassion on him. There's a passage that says Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them. It's the same word, moved to compassion, took pity on them. This Samaritan was loving this hurt man just like Jesus would. So verse 34 says this, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, oil for healing, wine for antiseptic and pain. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. So this Samaritan walks by the scene and everyone boos. He's, the, he's clearly the villain in the story to Jews, but then he ends up being the one who helps. He ends up being the good guy. Now this is no big deal to us, but this would have been an incredible plot twist to the first century Jew who was listening. This is the, for us, this is the story of the Good Samaritan, and so now we use the word Good Samaritan to describe people who are, we name hospitals after Good Samaritan. We, we, we call people who stop along the side of the road when there's a flat tire a Good Samaritan. For us, it's just become second nature to refer to Samaritans as good. But that is because of this story. To the first century Jew, Good Samaritan was an oxymoron. It didn't make any sense. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan as far as the Jews concerned. It was an oxymoron like airline food or congre congressional ethics or black light or irate patient or jumbo shrimp or minor disaster or old news or partially completed pretty ugly country music good kitty. They're words that don't go together. A good Samaritan? Oxymoron. So Jesus tells this story and then he gets to the kicker. He asks the question, verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? What do you think? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? But look how the expert of the law answers the question and you'll get just how much animosity there is. He says, the one who had mercy on him, he won't even utter the name Samaritan. He's not even going to say it because he hates those people that much. But he says the one who had mercy on him was clearly the one who loved his neighbor. Now Jesus refers back to the original question, well, who is my neighbor? And he says to him, go and do likewise. Go and neighbor like the good Samaritan. Friends, God calls us to this kind of just radical love bold love, love that is scary, a love that takes risks. 
The first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked when they encountered this hurt man was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan asked, if I don't stop and help this man, what will happen to him? Friends, if we're concerned with ourselves, we might find every reason in the world not to help, not, not to be a neighbor. But if we are primarily concerned with other people, it will be hard to find a reason not to be a good neighbor to every person we come in contact with. Whether you like them or not, it won't matter. When I think of this parable and Jesus' concept of neighboring, I think it speaks to how we relate to people we don't necessarily like. Both Jews and Samaritans thought of themselves as chosen people. They had the right answer, and they had the right way to worship God, and the other people were wrong. But for one of them to be right, the other had to be wrong. By making the Samaritan the hero of the story, I think Jesus was making a fairly biting social commentary. He's saying that God loves and expects us to love the people we hate. even if they have a different idea about God, even if they are of a different religion, even if it's dangerous. But here's the real twist. Here's the real twist of the story. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not just about being charitable. And I think we really get this wrong. It's not, uh, it's not really just about loving people like the Samaritan loved people. It's, it's more than just loving the people we hate. I think most people walk away with this idea that the Good Samaritan is all about being a Good Samaritan. You know, we should be a Good Samaritan. We even use that kind of language. But the point of the story wasn't so much to challenge us to be Good Samaritans. The point of the story was to challenge us, well, the original audience, that Samaritans could be good. When we think of the people that we've written off, looked down on, worthless, people who we even consider as enemies of God, and imagine that they too have the capacity for good, that they might have something to offer. It's not just that we should be the good Samaritan, it's that we should learn to see Samaritans as good. I want you to write this down as well. The twist of the parable is that the one you hate actually turns out to be the one you need. I encourage you to take a second and write that down. And ponder this week its implications. The one you hate actually turns out to be the one you need. That nothing good could come from Samaria and yet Jesus changes the narrative. I was curious in preparing for this teaching what a modern day parable might look like that illustrates this point. So I began to Google um, stories of people, groups of people who tend to be at odds with each other, but stories where one who we would tend to think as an enemy or someone we tend to think less down, especially as Christians, the Christians as a whole, not us individually, but just Christians as a whole would tend to look down on. And imagine, are there any stories where those people are being good Samaritans? Well, I, I did some searching and I have to say, friends, there's like tons of stories in, in, in this line. You can find tons of amazing stories where people where stereotypically in the American Christianity the majority or a, a large number of American Christians tend to look down on, those same people are actually helping Christians. 
Um, and so I, I began to run across all these stories. There was one story that hit me particularly hard that just seems to line up with the Good Samaritan story. It's a modern day story. Um, it takes place um, in, uh, um, in the Philippines. Now in a world where Christianity is, um, where Christians, many Christians in the name of national security try to exclude Muslims, this is one of those groups. Christians and Muslims, there's a great amount of animosity. Um, not here, not with our church, uh, I hope not, but with Christianity in general. So in a world division, um, I began to see, is there any stories where a Muslim begins to help Christians? Well, there's tons of stories. One takes place in the Philippines. It's predominantly a Christian nation, uh, the Philippines, but there's one island with a number of cities that is majority Muslim. So last year in September, war broke out amongst some of the Islamic extremists that were living in this area. While most of the people in the town were Muslims, um, and thus relatively safe amongst the uh, militant Muslims, there was a handful of Christians, many of who were not from that town, but were visiting the town to work. In fact, there was a whole crew doing some work on a cell tower in this particular island. Well, the violence began to um, spill into the streets. This one particular group of Christians were cornered, and they were forced to recite a creed that only Muslims would know. When they couldn't, they tried to escape. One of them did, and they were shot immediately. This became very violent, one of the worst wars in this area. Now, living in this town was a faithful Muslim named uh, Lusman. He's retired uh, with two wives and a bunch of grown children. He had been raised Muslim. Uh, he had even studied in schools in Egypt and in Saudi Arabia. One of those schools was the same school Osama bin Laden attended. By all accounts, he was Muslim through and through. And yet, on the second day of the fighting, his home became a refuge for those who were hiding. And eventually he was housing 72 to 74 people in his home, very small home, and half of those were Christians. Now he knew it was only a matter of time before the extremists knocked on the doors, which is why he said to the Christians who were staying in his home, he says, I'll die first before you do. You only die if I die. Well, they did eventually come to his door and he quickly crammed all of the Christians into his laundry room where they almost suffocated. And the militants at the door began to speak religion and he interrupted them saying, don't talk to me about Islam, I studied in Mecca. And he asked who the commanding officer was. They told him and then the next day the commanding officer came back who he happened to know and was good friends. And that was enough for them to leave the house alone. But after days passed, food ran out, and eventually they left, disguised, uh, the Christians disguised as Muslims, and they made it safely out of town. Now, I tell you the story, and I ask you, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the person in need? You see, Jesus is not only teaching us to be a good Samaritan, he is teaching us that Samaritans can be good. That goodness and kindness and patience and compassion and love is a gift from God and God can give it to whomever God wants. That God's love can be found in some of the places we least expect it. And regardless of where it comes from, when we see it, we should receive it and be thankful. Oh, I'm so thankful for the good neighbors in this city who know nothing of Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. But I'm still thankful for the love that God is able to pour out through people, sometimes without them even realizing it's God all along. So I wonder if there isn't a neighbor near you that you've failed to meet, failed to connect with, that might just be the person you need in your life. 
for something that has yet to happen. So I want to invite you, as we bring this, seri- this sermon to a series before we pick it up later in the summer, I want to invite you to meet your neighbors. This is a legitimate challenge. I know that uh, many of you will probably tuck this away and forget about it, but I challenge you, I invite you to spend some time and, and actually begin to meet your neighbors, regardless of who they are. Very simple. You can uh, take this, snap it onto your, uh, click it onto your refrigerator or somewhere in your house, and begin this summer as you interact, as you mow your lawn or go through your apartment, whatever the case may be, bake some cookies, whatever you want to do, but actually go about meeting your neighbors and also being a neighbor to those that we pass along the way. And then also begin to pray and ask, maybe your place might be a good place to hold a little block party later in August. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and as they get ready to lead us in our closing song, I'm going to invite you to a time of prayer. And I want you to actually think about the neighbors that are living near you. One of the great ways that God um, is able to change our hearts towards people is by praying for them. Um, God has changed my heart towards many people by choosing to pray for them. And so whether you know your neighbors or not, whether you know them by name, you can certainly recognize their houses. I want us to spend a few moments and begin to pray and lift up those that live near us. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you. Lord, we bring to our minds, even now, images of the houses next to us, across the street, behind us, down on the corner. Lord, we ask that you would help us as people who've been charged with the command to love our neighbors, that you would help us live into that, that we might be examples of your love and your grace and your compassion in this world. That we would move beyond just loving you, but loving like you. We think of those along our street, those we know and those we don't. We ask that your Holy Spirit would begin to open up doors for us to meet and interact and at least at the very minimum learn the names of those who are living amongst us. Lord, help us to be good neighbors. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you please stand and join us for our closing song?